Welcome to Archival Fever. In each episode, your intrepid hosts take you into the archive in search of the wild, crazy, and bizarre. I'm Amy Vider. And I'm Caroline Barta. To kickstart this episode, we visited Baylor University's Texas collection. It's an archive that houses over 1,500 Texas cookbooks. In addition to many volumes that feature Texas's best, including maps and other items that will tell you more about this big state. We are going to talk a little bit about some of the family volumes that we browsed. And we hope through diving through this mountain of cookbooks to give you a taste of a rich American food tradition that's complicated by relationships to the family unit and economic reality. We had a delightful day giggling through genealogies, favorite recipes, and family stories. We discovered the line between a loose family recipe collection and other published cookbooks is quite narrow. These homespun cookbooks were spiral-bound recipe collections drawn from family lore, newspaper clippings, package wrappers, and promotional materials. Fritos and Jell-O, oh my. And they were often produced to commemorate anniversaries, family reunions, or to even fundraise for a beloved charity like a local church or school. The person or persons involved in the compilation of these books was usually far from a professional chef or celebrity. Well, except maybe in their family. That's right. Usually they were caretakers of their family history. Not all cookbooks are created for commercial success or for a wide readership. More and more archives are collecting family treasures alongside their published cookbook counterparts. And why would it be so important to get volumes that didn't have a wide readership? Well, Tracy Marie Kelly explains that the kitchen really serves as a space for women to combine the practical business of food preparation, along with their imaginative possibilities in storytelling. For instance, while you might use a cookbook to bake a pan of brownies, you could also inscribe a story of your aunt's special recipe and the family reunion that went along with those brownie recipes. There are a couple of different types of cookbooks that we talk about today, in particular food memoirs, and those are really stories that are related to food, but not necessarily only about food. Or a community cookbook, so maybe your PTA or a local church could put together a cookbook. And then finally, a culinary autobiography. And that kind of is what it sounds like. A culinary autobiography is looking at a bigger picture. It's kind of telling the entire story of a type of culinary tradition or maybe a rich history of cooking. When we're talking about culinary autobiography, we could define it like a complex pastiche of recipes, personal anecdotes, family history, public history, photographs, and even family trees. Much like the family cookbooks we encountered at the Texas Collection that were really spurred on by local associations. So you can think about, like Caroline mentioned, family reunions um, or even kind of tributes to particular family members. So if somebody passes away, you know, your favorite uncle, maybe you make a collection of his favorite recipes. The books that we're going to tell you about are both about one person and a community. And they tell a story through the recipes as well as any type of incidental notes they lead, instructions, and supplementary commentary. Even rare book archives like the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, the New York Public Library, and the Library of Congress have extensive cookbook collections and recognize their value as historical documents. These collections have extended our knowledge of women's lives and literacies from centuries past. As Dr. Rebecca Sharpless, professor of history at Texas Christian University explains, there are so many things you can learn about women's lives from reading a cookbook. Colonists relied upon popular British cookbooks, like Eliza Smith's The Complete Housewife, published in 1727. 
These guides were rather limiting in the New World because they listed ingredients native to a European climate. As the first American cookbook published in 1796, Amelia Simmons' American Cookery prompted the new nation to ask questions about its forming identity through food. What is American cuisine? Her book relies on adaptation and imitation. It features recipes that are distinctly North American and have ingredients like cornmeal, cranberries, turkey, and squash. Of course, indigenous peoples had used regional ingredients for thousands of years. But Simmons does not attribute her newfound knowledge to existing food traditions. That's right. And the story of early American food, New England hogs the attention. It does not adequately reflect the diversity of emerging American cuisine. And over the past two centuries, American food has represented these problematic realities. Not only did American cuisine rely on cultural appropriation, the results of colonization and slavery, but more specifically, Southern food muddles the diverse conflicts within communities. These represent the sometimes haphazard but often meaningful associations created around our closest relationships with food. Food production in early southern kitchens often put off that African and Caribbean culture had seamlessly melded with European transplants. John Edgerton, a journalist who's known for his work on civil rights and southern culture, has explained the proximity of whites and blacks in the South, their isolation from mainstream America, and the centrality of women to the region's foodways made Afro European cookery an existential reality almost from the beginning of the United States. The South had thoroughly and indivisibly integrated its food. That's true, at least from a food perspective. But despite the perception of this complete integration, the realities of 19th and 20th century Southern culture more broadly reflected the after effects of slavery and continued segregation from Jim Crow laws. Even after the Civil War, black cooks, mostly women, some men, continued to run middle and upper class kitchens. Remaining hierarchies within Southern families gave rise to two prevalent and often overlapping caricatures of black women. Connected to food preparation, the aunt or mammy figure, which is occasionally swapped out with miss, stripped these women of their full identities in favor of a two dimensional portrait of their domestic role in a kitchen space. Ostensibly, aunt or mammy were honorary titles bestowed on slaves and later servants. This connotation is problematic because it really ingratiated them into the family hierarchy. It tried to make African American women desexualized objects. It signified that black women would not supplant the woman of the house, either in her domestic or her wifely duties. Two popular media representations of these caricatures were Mammy and Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, famously portrayed on screen in 1939 by Hattie McDaniel, who was the first black woman to receive an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. And also Aunt Jemima, a female counterpart to Uncle Tom, created as a marketing ploy. She was a mythic persona, a caricature for all seasons, a jolly fat black woman in a do-rag, cooking up a storm, singing while she worked. Right, but this figure of Aunt Jemima only appeared at the turn of the 20th century. Through the sales of products like pancake mix, marketing agencies perpetuated stereotypes of black women. 
Vital work to reclaim a history of black cookbook authors has most recently been undertaken by African-American journalist Toni Tipton-Martin in her 2015 book, The Jemima Code, Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. Described as a culinary autobiography, Tipton's book emulates the scholarship of a museum exhibition catalog, while maintaining the approachability of an art book for a coffee table. It introduces generally unknown African-American cookbooks to a wider audience in order to substantiate a heritage of greatness, exemplify culinary freedom for black cooks, and allow everyone to embrace Jemima's bandana. Tipton Martin's work has recovered, cataloged, and critiqued 200 of these cookbooks in order to ensure their contributions to American cuisine continue to be valued by future Americans. Tipton Martin articulates the Jemima Code and its significance in this clip from the University of Texas Press. When we think about the idea of a Jemima Code, it's a myth based on a myth. It's a story of actions, responses, behaviors, choices that are made by people in response to seeing this trademarked image um, that was used to categorize African-American women who worked in America's kitchens. It was created by two guys who wanted to sell more pancake flour, and so they collected characteristics of real women, and some from Southern Plantation mammy stories, and they came up with this aggregate image that they called Aunt Jemima. And forever, Aunt Jemima has been the trademark image on cornmeal, pancake flour, lots of other baking products. The problem with that image is that all of those characteristics lead to stereotyping. It's sort of a private inside joke told between these guys and their broader community, of obviously of white Americans, so that anybody who approaches that image comes with their own thoughts sees it through their own filters, and that includes African Americans, right? So it had this peculiar encoded way of performing as a symbol that sent multiple messages out into the community, some as simple as buy this flower because this wonderful woman that you remember from slavery days made really terrific pancakes. The reason that I find the stereotyping to be such a problem is that it led to prejudicial treatment of African-American women in particular, but some men as well, who worked in America's kitchens so that we were sometimes categorized as the laborers who had to do all this heavy lifting and heavy work. And that's not very positive. Or we were treated as people who really did perform quite well in the kitchen, but we did so with a natural instinct, a kind of a voodoo magic, I've described it. You know, just this way that was, generally speaking, in either way, not intelligent. And feminists and African-American scholars have gone even further to describe that image as a way to keep African-American women enslaved in a box. Returning to the Baylor Archive, we were surprised to find one of the recipe collections profiled by Tipton Martin. The curator, Amy Oliver, showed us another work Tipton Martin had inquired about, but was not able to feature due to scheduling constraints. 
The first, featured in the Jemima Code, is by Lucille Bishop Smith, whose resume is as varied as her recipe collection. Smith's accomplishments include marketing the hot roll mix, as well as working as a food editor for CPM Magazine, working as a food demonstrator and caterer, pastry chef, and dietitian. As a black woman, she was a pioneer in the culinary profession. Smith's treasure chest of fine foods offers practical recipes served with helpful tips. A recipe for mock champagne reads, Here is a beverage for your teenage parties. Church groups, educators, college students, Valdemar counselors, and campers have stamped their approval on this mock champagne as being the answer to a present need. Here it is. Put into a punch bowl cubes of ice or a molded block of ice or frozen Sprite. Add a pink rose when semi-frozen. Mix equal amounts of Sprite and apple juice and pour over the ice. Allow it to stand for a few minutes. Serve cold and delight your guests. Try adding a bit of pink coloring to the champagne before pouring over the ice for pink champagne. Note, mix a serve to retain the sparkle and zest. Yeah, I know what you're serving for your next big party. Uh, So not only are Smith's collections a treat to read and imagine serving, but they also supported important community work. In addition to raising funds for service projects like improving standards in local slums, her words... Smith also conducted itinerant teaching training classes, and she established the Commercial Cooking and Baking Department at Prairie View A&M University, a historically black college near Houston, Texas. She really empowered others by using food as a tool of social uplift. Another gem in the Texas collection is the Lone Star Cookbook and Meat Special, From the Slaughter Pen to the Dining Room Table by Artaway Fillmore. Fillmore describes his motive to pass on to housewives, cooks, and those expecting to become cooks the benefit of knowledge acquired by him from study and upward of 30 years' experience in the kitchen as cook. Those who prepare the food are in large measure responsible for the health of those who eat it. Therefore, a knowledge as to how to properly prepare food is indispensable to good health. With over 30 years of experience as a chef in some of the largest and leading hotels, cafes, and railroad companies in the Southwest, including the Hilton Hotel in Dallas, Texas, Fillmore's menus are organized by course with suggested prices. 25 cents for sliced cucumbers, $1.50 for plank steak at lunch, or all the way to $1.80 for Vienna Schnitzel Holstein for dinner. These published volumes expected a larger audience than the family concoctions which first held our attention. Nonetheless, they really reveal a similar care for giving back to their community, and they prioritize teaching healthy food practices for families and neighbors. Today, chefs and cooks of all skill levels continue to collect and use cookbook traditions to inspire and to reconnect with American food heritages. An excellent example of a Southern chef rediscovering her roots is Mashama Bailey, the chef at The Gray Restaurant in Savannah, Georgia. Her restaurant, The Gray, is located in a formerly segregated Greyhound bus station. Her restaurant in style as a chef explores the rich history of Black cooking in the South, but also uses her French culinary traditions. So she went to culinary school um, in New York, and then she also spent a lot of time in France learning from European traditions um, of preparation, but also of practice. In the new season of Chef's Table on Netflix, Bailey describes her return to Georgia as a sort of homecoming. Bailey's upbringing is a tale of blending influences and recognizing her heritage. 
Although she was born in the Bronx and raised in Queens, she actually grew up um, a substantial part of her childhood in the South. Her maternal roots hail from Waynesboro, Georgia. She also went to grammar school in Savannah at Charles Ellis, and she spent many summers at her grandmother's in Waynesboro. So after Bailey spent time working at several restaurants in New York City, she received a job opportunity in Savannah, Georgia. And when she came to Savannah, one of the things she realized that she needed to do was to research Black culinary traditions. This included Edna Lewis, who was a critical voice for Blacks and their contributions to American cookery. Her cookbooks, The Edna Lewis Cookbook, published in 1972, The Taste of Country Cooking, 1976, and In Pursuit of Flavor, 1988, are all canonical volumes in this tradition. And one of the things that Edna Lewis's cookbooks, along with others, taught uh, Bailey when she was looking for kind of new ideas and new takes for her restaurant was that traditions need to be recreated in order to be preserved. So you can learn a lot from reading a book, but sometimes you have to replicate a process uh, manually in order to preserve that tradition. It's also important to pass down knowledge through generations. She realized that the same kind of cooking she had grown up learning with her grandmothers, was the cooking that was represented in these cookbooks. And so another thing that Bailey did to ensure Edna Lewis was kind of taken out of the archive and back into the kitchen was she serves as the vice chairman on the board of the Edna Lewis Foundation, working to preserve and celebrate Edna's legacy. Archives that store cookbooks and recipe collections share insights about food and how it not only sustains and nourishes us as individuals, but also signifies the growth and development of a people and their culture. While cookbooks can't tell us exactly what was on the place of eaters on a Tuesday, they do reveal how and what generations before thought and wrote about food. When we've stepped into the archives to look at American food, past and present, we've uncovered how, even in the most contentious and polarized of times, the necessity of food brings communities together. Food can serve as an analogy for the relationships we create in the kitchen and around the table, but also for the patterns of the relationships preserved in food archives. While the future of American cooking remains uncertain, as it always has, we're optimistic that it will taste great. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. New episodes are available the 15th of every month. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Archival Fever and let us know about an archive you love, maintain, or think we should feature in the last five minutes of our show. Our show notes are available at archivalfever.com. Our music is by Yvonne Teo. Sound editing is by Jacob Weiss and his team at UT Liberal Arts Development Studio. Financial support by UT College of Liberal Arts. Thank you for listening.